Welcome to Empower Humans. Welcome again to the Empower Humans podcast. This is episode 105, my friends. Welcome. And uh, today we get to talk to Maho Malfino. She has an interesting background, a somewhat unique name. We'll talk about the origins of that and where she's from and uh, some of her life trajectory that brought her to this place where she wrote a book called Break the Good Girl Myth, How to Dismantle Outdated Rules, Unleash Your Power, and Design a More Purposeful Life. And probably one of the great messages of our time that needs to be out there. Uh, I know everyone's got all kinds of opinions about all kinds of things from race to gender and all the things that have happened. And she talks a lot about the patriarchy and uh, history there that's gone on for literally millennia in our society since way before any of us were born. And uh, some of the things that can change for the better and that are in a lot of ways. Before we jump into all that, by the way, go get that book at goodgirlmyth.com goodgirlmyth.com. I don't think you'll regret picking up this one. And uh, we want to remind you, as always, up front, you are absolutely priceless, no matter your gender, race, uh, height. (laughs) We're just talking about physical attributes, but uh, your standing in life, where you're from, your family dynamic, whatever your situation is, you are absolutely priceless. That's an equal, unchanging state between all of us that uh, we can't alter and no one should alter. And if anyone's tried to convince you otherwise, do not believe them. Uh, You are absolutely priceless. And by the way, along with that, you're never alone. Uh, You can reach out here at empowerhumans.com on our contact page, info at empowerhumans.com. Also the email address uh, as well as at empower101 on Instagram and Twitter. So reach out if you need to. Uh, Also, don't be shy about talking to friends, family, neighbors, co-workers, uh, whoever might be around you uh, if you're struggling. I know a lot of people are struggling right now. Nothing to be ashamed of. You're not alone. Don't be <laughs> ashamed of the struggle. Light, a lot of life is about struggle. Uh, I don't want to go off on too many tangents here, but just know that I have belief in humanity. I have belief in you both individually and collectively as a global society. I know that we can do great things together, that we can rise out of uh, a lot of the nonsense we've created for ourselves and build on much of the great things that we've already created for ourselves. Uh, so moving along here real quick, our challenges before we jump into the interview, study, keep studying, go get Maho's book, uh, the break the good girl myth and, uh, find out what that's all about. Find out all of her great insights about what these myths are, how women can break free of these cages. And I think this book can apply to anybody, by the way, men, women, girls, boys, grownups, old folks, (laughs) whoever it is, uh, whoever you are, I think this book brings a lot of insight from different angles of whoever and whatever situation we are in our particular lives. Uh, Go pick up that and lots of other, there's millions and millions of books, audio books, videos and all kinds of ways we can study, keep our minds sharp. So do that. That's challenge number one. Challenge number two, make great moments. Again, that's always generally with loved ones. Make people matter. Put people first. These will be pillars in our lives that can largely overshadow many of the shortcomings and mistakes that all of us have. So again, you're not alone in that. Uh, We need to empower ourselves and realize these facts. You are not alone and make these great moments. Uh, We can do it day in and day out. Every day can be a priceless treasure to go along with your inherent priceless worth. So make those great moments. And of course, our last challenge, let's keep doing this podcast together. I love you and appreciate you. I'm flattered that you spend time with me. And I'm flattered that we get a guest like Maho Malfino here. And uh, without further ado, let's jump into our interview. Here we go. We're excited here today with Maho Malfino. And uh, we're going to talk about all kinds of topics today and your background. How are you doing today, Maho? 
I'm great. How are you, Phil? I'm uh, I'm excellent. Thank you so much. I <laughs> we were talking just before. You're in Los Angeles. I'm in Las Vegas. <laughs> so we're kind of uh, yeah, sort of. It's uh, driving. It's like four to five hours, uh, depending on how fast you're going. But uh, how are things? Before we jump in all these uh, topics today and everything, all the great things that you do. How are things in Los Angeles these days? You told me you're in Venice Beach area, which is kind of the heart of, obviously by the coast, but kind of the heart of the city, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, things are eerie here. People walking around with face masks. Um, things are really quiet. I live two blocks away from Abbott Kinney, which is usually a bustling street, and it's dead right now, you know? Um, so it's a strange time, I think, for all of us. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of that way we were talking a little bit and I've told some of our audience this in the past in Las Vegas, it's kind of same thing. You expect Vegas to be this hustle bustle, at least down by the strip and (laughs) any city with, you know, a fair amount of people and a downtown and all that usually is that way. But I see it gradually coming back here at least. And I think LA might take a little bit longer, but, uh, but you've only, you've only been there a short time. Sounds like, and you're from, you, you lived in the Bay area before that. Yeah, that's right. Um, Originally, actually, I didn't tell you this when we were uh, just getting started, but I'm originally from Argentina. So I was born in Argentina. My Mm -hmm. parents are Argentinian. When I was really young, we immigrated to Canada. So when I was two years old, immigrated to Toronto. Um, Then I moved to Montreal, which is a French-Canadian part. I grew up in Montreal. And eventually, uh, my father got a job in Maryland, of all places, uh, Potomac, Maryland, uh, which is like a biotech hub, and that's his line of work. And so I ended up at 16 uh, going and living in suburban Maryland, which was like a huge culture shock. So, and then then made my way to California. So when people ask me where I'm from, I don't know what to tell them. <laughs> I'm like, I'm from so many places, and um, <laughs> yeah. I have so many homes. I'm a global child, I like to tell people. Yeah, wow, that's amazing. Uh, yeah, we didn't talk about I knew that you uh, had, you know, been several places and lived other countries. funny, in our last few podcasts, we've had several uh, folks in and around Canada. <laughs> so, obviously, you're not there yeah. now, but uh, uh, great, great people, smart people. A lot of comedians come out of Canada, a lot of... Uh, just great things. Obviously, that's not where you're from originally. Did you, So what age were you when you left Argentina? I was only two years old, so I don't really have a lot of memories of Argentina. And what's been kind of interesting to think about is, um, you know, what my life could have been if I stayed in Argentina, how different I would have been. Because culture really shapes us. Shapes, shapes us. Culture really shapes us. Yeah. And that's a big theme in my work and my book. And Yeah. Um, so I sometimes like to fantasize my parallel universe, <laughs> Argentinian life upbringing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think my, my father and mother really wanted to give us more opportunities, you know, they wanted more opportunities for themselves and for us, for my brother and I. So going to Canada made sense in the eighties when Argentina was going through the dirty war. Oh Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. In fact, the the mother of my boys is from Chile originally, <laughs> kind of your neighbors to the west. Yeah, and uh, yeah. and so and I lived in Chile for a little while myself, so I learned some Spanish and stuff. But um, did, so did you learn Spanish? As, you must have, because your parents, you know, probably spoke it in the home, whether you were there or Canada or wherever. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, I had such a complicated relationship to language um, because I grew up around so many of them. Uh, so when we immigrated to Canada, my parents were very eager for us to learn English because English was sort of the, you know, holy grail language. And yeah. so they very much encouraged us to learn English. And in the home, while they spoke to my brother and I in Spanish, we got into the habit of responding in English to them, which uh, I think back on and so regret. So I can, I understand Spanish 100% and I have been able to regain my Spanish through school and schooling and going back to Argentina. So I can speak it conversationally, yeah. but it's not as strong as my English, which I, you know, pains me a little bit. There's some <laughs> feelings of, you know, language loss is like a really hard thing for immigrants, refugees, and even people who've been displaced. You know, I think about you know, Native Americans who were forced to give up their language and that there's so much trauma associated with that. So yeah, yeah. to answer your question, it's a complicated relationship with language. So I speak um, English, Spanish, and French. Um, I would say English is my strongest language, followed by Spanish, and then followed by French. Yeah, that's true. You lived in French-Canadian areas there, too, so that makes some sense. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. that's interesting. So, and you mentioned a brother. Is it just the two of you? Yeah, I have a little brother. He's a year and eight months younger than I am. It's just the two of us. Wow. You say a year and eight months younger? Yeah. Oh. Back to back. So uh-huh. did you did you guys get along okay as kids? I, I'm always interested in sibling relationship. I have two older brothers myself. I'm the youngest. <laughs> so. Oh, you are. Yeah. Oh, it's, yeah, sibling order is like a whole thing. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> yeah, I'm very much like an older sister, which relates to me, like, becoming a, what I, you know, what I call a good girl. I was, like, very responsible. You know, I always did my homework. I was, like, a very much a leader, um, you know. And I think my brother was more shy and a little bit more... Um, how do I say this? Like, he was just, he took, uh, I, we were opposites in that I would dive into the deep end right away and try things and fail and hurt myself right away. Mm-hmm. And he was always like, you know, he would take his time. He was watchful. And I remember he didn't start walking until he was a year, a year, uh, he didn't start walking until he was two or three or some age that was like concerning to my parents. Yeah. You know, uh-huh. he, he just took, he just, you know, longer so we were opposites in that way we played off each other I was a very more dominant assertive type type of girl <laughs> and he was more quiet wow that's interesting yeah sometimes boys uh, are a little slower you know and I can say that because I'm a boy so I won't offend anybody <laughs> and that's that's okay too for various reasons and dynamics and family he must have been a newborn when you guys left Argentina then you're talking the year and eight months and you were about two <laughs> so yeah wow yeah that's crazy. He was a newborn. Mm-hmm. Yep, he was a newborn. And it's so it's so fascinating, you know, so much of my work has to do with what we call as gender norms. Like, mm-hmm. what are the expectations we have around how a boy should be? And what are the expectations we have around how a girl should be, right? Mm-hmm. And in some ways, my brother and I, now that I look back on it, we defied those expectations. Like, I was very much an assertive kind of, quote unquote, I was a girl with more masculine attributes Mm. and 
in some ways he was a boy with maybe more of what you might call more feminine attributes early on, you know? And it's, it's sad to me that our culture expects us to fulfill these certain scripts mm-hmm. when maybe our nature wants to go against those scripts. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, these are stereotypes too. Like you're, you know, boys don't play with dolls and girls aren't into sports and cars and, <laughs> and, yeah. and all these various you know, little attributes. And my dad always told me when he was a kid, I think a girl called his house, you know, to talk to him. And this is in the 1960s when he was a teenager. <laughs> and his mom said, no, girls should not be calling boys. <laughs> this kind exactly. of stuff. And th- this is the yeah. culture that these people, and they, you know, we can't blame them. That's what they grew up with too. Um, but so, Tell, tell me about this career path that led into where you are in this book, this Break the Good Girl Myth, How to Dismantle Outdated Rules, Unleash Your Power, and Design a More Purposeful Life. And that's an excellent, excellent title and subtitle. So how did we get to that <laughs> place? You. Yeah, I like it a lot. How did we get to this place? Because I understand uh, you kind of felt you were in a dead-end place in your 20s and uh, mm-hmm. shifted gears a little bit. Yeah, so... I'm an immigrant, like I mentioned, also a daughter of immigrants. So I always felt the pressure to achieve, right? Because imagine your parents leave their country and they sacrifice so much. And then you feel like I better do something with that sacrifice. That put a lot of pressure on myself to be the best that I could be, which is good, right? So I was very much an achiever. You know, I was always getting good grades. I got trophies. I got awards. I would win competitions, mm-hmm. and I became what I call a very good girl. You know, I was the girl who would sit in the front of the classroom and shoot up her hand because I knew the answer, and I wanted the teacher to pick me. My teachers loved me. I was a teacher's pet, quote-unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I did all the right things. I checked off all the boxes and followed all the rules, mm-hmm. and I thought that would lead to success in life. But as I graduated from college... Um, and went out into the real world, I realized being a good girl isn't actually that helpful in some ways. Um, and I was in a cubicle job working at a, um, at a nonprofit outside of Washington, D.C., doing health policy research. Mm-hmm. And it was very intellectually interesting, and it checked off the bo- box, and I was happy I could put it on my resume. But it was also really soul-crushing, and... There was no creativity. There was no juice in it. And right. so I I got burnt out and I got disillusioned. And I, um, I felt like, what's my purpose? What am I here on the planet to do? Like, why, you know, am I just here on the planet to do all the things that are expected of me and follow all the scripts that society has laid out for me? Like, I felt in my heart that there was something more. And that was a big turning point. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting, and I think a lot of people get to that place. and And for our audience, by the way, I think that what we're talking about today can apply uh, in various angles to anybody, including us men. Uh, a lot of the insights you have to provide can be very insightful for us as we, because we all associate with each other, men and women uh, of various sorts and backgrounds. Um, so, so would you say that you were kind of, uh, I don't know, your motivations behind the good girl? thing as you grew up, but I see this, you know, I saw this a lot as a kid with the girls I associated with, some of them. Um, would you say you were kind of in a people pleaser place or? Oh yeah, definitely. 
I was a big people pleaser, like in the sense that like I would cave into social pressures to do things I didn't want to do. Like I remember a lot of my girlfriends wanted to go out to nightclubs in my early twenties mm-hmm. and I'm an introvert. I'm a nerd. Like I don't need to go to the nightclub. Like I would rather be spending my time in a library. I'm that, I can be that <laughs> introverted and quite yeah. boring in some ways. Um, and, but I would say, yes. Yeah, you know, because it was cool and it was the right thing to do. And so I'd end up at these nightclubs in my early 20s, you know, dancing on tables and trying to please the sort of men that were paying for the bottles, you know, at the nightclub. (laughs) And I remember having this moment of being like, what am I doing? You know, like, (laughs) why am I doing this? (laughs) Like, I'm, you know, and, and this feeling like, I wasn't being myself. And I think a lot of us get to that point where we say yes to things. We just go along with the program of other people until it catches up to us. And we think, whoa, what have I done? (laughs) Who am I becoming, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's true. That's interesting because, uh, yeah, I think a lot of people can relate to that too, where you start living a life on a path that wasn't really completely chosen by you. I mean, to an extent it was, but what you chose was more, it sounds like it was more in line with trying to meet certain expectations. How does that play out for girls? I mean, I understand and I've heard lots of girls uh, say various things about being a woman in general. Uh, This isn't me saying this. I'm just repeating that. I've heard the word brutal. I mean, girls, you know, between the shaving of legs and the monthly cycles and the pee sitting down and all, and that's just physical things. Uh, let alone all the societal norms and body image things that come up. Uh, Why does this happen? When I was doing research for my book, I was looking into ancient societies, like back then, like thousands of years ago. And what you find out is that in the Bronze Age, there was a time when, especially in old Europe, um, when people worshipped the goddess and they were very close to nature. So they... um, because they were growing food from the land and they were living in valleys that were very lush with water. They had reverence for cycles and seasons and they associated nature with something feminine. And so there was a time in that society, in those societies, the role between men and women were fairly equal. So it was more of an egalitarian society. Mm -hmm. And then with time, something started to shift and we start to see it with the Greeks um, where, um, men become more dominant than women. And there are many theories about why (laughs) this happens, and we can geek out about that. Some of it has to do with the beginnings of agriculture. Some of it has to do with centralizing power into states and um, starting to have pharaohs and kings. um, But for whatever reason, we start to see a shift where men start to hold economic and political power, and they start to centralize it. And um, the three major religions that come out of that, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, are really born from that legacy. And so um, what I'm talking about and describing to you isn't uh, that there was one group of men who were evil out there. It's actually an entire culture and system that is so old, um, that has lived on for millennia. Mm-hmm. And some you know, in the book, I call that, and, and many feminists call that the patriarchy. And I've, I've noticed when I, sometimes when I use that word, 
some people go, they get scared. They think it's a very radical word. But actually, when you just look at the historical facts, it really has been the way of the world for at least two to three thousand years. Yeah. No, I think you're I think you're right on that. That's obviously historically accurate. And and it plays out differently in different societies. Like there's different cultures uh, that existed in different parts of the world where it was more or less, and in some cases more equal for women over time. But overall, that patriarchy has has played out and kind of dominated <laughs> global society for some time. How does this patriarchy play out, though, and how uh, what what does this mean for women? And we know some of those things, and and obviously there's various things uh, that are that are generally true about men and women. I mean, men tend to be physically stronger and other things. That's one way men yeah. have dominated women probably as well. But how does this play out and, and what does it do to women, good and or bad, but probably mostly bad? What does it do? Yeah, well, in the patriarchy, we start to believe first at the most fundamental level, when you're born as a little girl, you already kind of sense like you're in the second place right? <laughs> like mm. first place, boys and men, you're second place. And not even, we're not even talking about other genders who don't fit this binary. They're in like a different place, third or fourth place. But there's a sense that you already feel like you're less than. And so that on a very subconscious level starts to rub down on your sense of self-worth and what you believe you deserve and can want in life. Mm-hmm. And so you're already born into a society that kind of tells you, like, here's what you can do and here's what you can't do. And I think that's what really starts to wear on you. Um, you know, as a little girl, for example, I mentioned to you that I was very assertive and some people didn't like that. Yeah. And so I would get some messages from my teachers and parents and even peers that that quality didn't make, wasn't good in a little girl. Yeah. And so what happens, you start to stifle it, you push it down, and then that goes somewhere that needs expression in some way. And so, and and mind you, I want to say for the men who are listening, the patriarchy hurts you too, right? What are are the messages that boys get in the patriarchy? You know, don't feel, you have to be a macho, Um, you have to be strong, you can't be vulnerable, you can't show weakness. Right, all the things that are tied into military and war mentality as well. And so um, I think the patriarchy hurts all of us. You know, it hurts girls, it hurts boys, it hurts people who don't fit into that binary. And yet we're still living in it. And so, you know, how do we, my work has been, especially for women, it's like, how do you recognize this programming inside of yourself and start to unlearn it? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right there. I, I I was listening the other day to some just statistics about uh, education. Uh, it's interesting because almost two years ago, I interviewed the authors, co-authors of this book, The Boy Crisis. Um, one of them mm-hmm. is John Gray, who wrote Men Are From Mars, Women From Venus, and and uh, Warren Farrell. And and they have some interesting things about this. This would be an interesting kind of panel discussion if we get them on board at the moment. Maybe we'll do that down the road. But uh, uh, because there's an interesting kind of boy crisis going on uh, in certain realms as well, even though this has played out in society and men have dominated women and stuff, where, where a lot of boys, you know, like 
I think it was around 60% of college graduates are actual actually women. And there's what they call in their book, the, this purpose void with boys as well. A lot of times where yeah. back in the day, it was like men were warriors and men were hunters. And, and a lot of times in modern society, that's not the case. And so yeah. there's a lot of things that have shifted with technology and society in general that it's an interesting little dynamic. What's going on modernly with women? Because I see women, uh, this is me from a distance and somewhat, you know, associating with women, of course, too. But I, I see women doing better in society in the last at least quarter century. Uh, you know, we had a woman presidential nominee in the last election and <laughs> things like that. But uh, are we going the right direction now? I guess is is the question. I, it seems like some things are. Yeah, I mean, I think it's. I, I love that you pointed out that boys are struggling in school. Um, so there there was a meta analysis done over three hundred studies looking at performance between girls and boys in school, and they found that girls do actually they are doing better globally in yeah. school than boys are. Yeah. Um, so that might explain that boy crisis. Um, but the issue is when you look deeper, it's why are girls doing better in school? Because school is a place with a lot of rules, <laughs> where you have a lot of structure, mm. and where you're told clearly what to do, like how to raise your hand and how to turn in your homework on time. So in some ways, girls do better in school because they they obey the rules, they pay attention, and um, they self-regulate in a way that we're seeing boys aren't. So... But then let's look beyond school for a second. Let's look at what happens when people leave the school system. And so let's just look at the research and the statistics. Who, you know, Fortune 500 companies, I think it's something like right now. Uh, I don't know, but it's definitely less than 15% are women leaders mm -hmm. in Fortune 500 companies. Um, so in all political economic, and even culture-making leadership, men still hold the majority yeah. by far. And so, yes, I think to answer your question, um, since, you know, since even 50 to 60 years ago, where a woman required her husband's signature to take out a credit card, you know, we've made, we've made progress since that time in the last half a century. Um, in large part thanks to the women's liberation movement. But there's still, like, a really long way to go, Phil. Like, I think that we are still seeing big gaps in leadership. And while a woman has run for president, mind you, she was not elected. And the person who was elected had far less experience than her. So... Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're and, right. And, and, you know... Is it, and is it surprising, given what we talked about, that the patriarchy has been around for thousands of years? It's going to take a long. I think it's going to take. It's going to take a few more centuries before we really start getting into more egalitarian footing. And um, but, you know, I tell the the women and I tell the women I work with and my readers like, don't lose heart because there's something that you can do. You can work on it within yourself. You know, there's some things that are outside of our control, but what's within our control? What's within our control is how we internalize these scripts 
and how we are fulfilling these expectations or not. Yeah. So what's in our control is that we can choose not to be, quote unquote, the patriarchy's good girl, and we can be our authentic selves, our most powerful selves. And in the same way for the men listening, you don't have to be the patriarchy's good boys. You can, you know, really step into your true authentic leadership and nature. So, you know, that's what I really bring it down to. Like, what can you control? Because a lot of the system is like outside of our control right now. Something like COVID and coronavirus is totally outside of our control. Yeah. Um, so we have to go back to what can we change within ourselves? Yeah. I think that's, uh, and that's a question to ask on every level in life, you know, from the family to the physical body and all these things. And, and then realize just how much power we truly do have, at least in our uh, sphere of influence in our lives. Uh, a lot of times we kind of just succumb to society that oh, I don't have p- power. And there are some things that we have less or no power over, but there are a lot of things, including our mindset and our approach to life and folks around us that, that we do. So I, I appreciate that uh, that philosophy. I, As I think about this too, in this boy crisis aspect, uh, one of the things they pointed out at the beginning of their book was the statistics. I don't remember the numbers, but uh, a big majority of parents uh, or, or expectant parents or wanting to become parents want girls. I come from a family of all boys, and then my parents split up, and my mom wasn't around. So it was like this, you know, a lot of rough housing, a lot of rough language, a lot of what does all this mean in terms of statistics in society? Like the last 50 years or so, the statistics for uh, divorce and uh, other things in, in families have gone up quite a bit uh, as women enter the workforce and stuff. I'm not saying they should or shouldn't. What I'm saying is, what does this mean in terms of family roles? Uh, women have traditionally for 50 years, you know, beyond the last 50 years have been the stay at home moms. And all we talk about men being the hunters and gatherers and protectors and warriors and all these things. Uh, are there any negative aspects to this? This, <laughs> And I know that's a loaded question, especially for someone like you doing the things you do. Are there any negative aspects? And I'm not saying I think there are or aren't. I'm just wondering, are there any negative aspects when it comes to the family dynamic and the statistics that have played out? I mean, I think in some ways with family structures, you know, when you think back to the 1950s and 60s, um, I think the divorce rate was probably pretty low. But I wonder things like domestic violence and infidelity, like what the stats were there. And then I just wonder marital satisfaction, like if you were to to um, research or poll the women in those 1950s marriages, like how happy are you, how satisfied are you um, versus the men, I'm willing to bet that um, a lot of these up until you know, the women's liberation movement, the the family and marital unit worked because in large part because people had very clear scripts, right? They had clear women do this and they stay at home, men work and do that. Yeah. And so when you have that rule based clarity, there is a simplicity to that that makes life really easy. But that doesn't mean that it's um, empowering and satisfying to all people involved, right? It can be simple and like, oh, great, I have a script I can follow, so don't have to ask questions. Things aren't complicated. 
But that doesn't mean that um, people are necessarily flourishing or thriving in those circumstances. Yeah. Then you give people freedom and choice, right? Because that's what essentially feminism at its core is trying to do. It's trying to tell, it's trying to give women the freedom and choice to be a housewife if she wants to be, right? Mm -hmm. It's not saying, feminism doesn't say don't be a stay-at-home mom or stay-at-home housewife. Feminism, true feminism, is actually saying, hey, you have a choice. Do you want to do that or do you want to do this, right? Um, do you want to be a stay-at-home mom or do you want to go out and, and work and work on your career? So once you give people more freedom, the scripts start to destabilize, right? And things get more complicated. And so I think we are still in that messy figuring out what do we do with this increased levels of freedom mm-hmm. that women have and how does that you know how can we make that work and what are the new scripts we need to create within um within marital structures that are gonna that are gonna take us forward i'll give you a concrete example because okay. this might be getting a little too theoretical but let's look at my parents marriage versus my marriage the distance between them is about 30 years my mother gave up her career in order to follow my father's career. Mm. So she was a lawyer. She studied law and she sacrificed that, which I talk about in the book, like many of our mothers and grandmothers have done because that's what was expected of her. And she didn't question it. She was like, yeah, of course you follow your husband, you know? And, um, so she and my father had more of a traditional uh, marriage in terms of gender roles where my father went out, she stayed at home um, and the scripts were more clear and um, the dynamic there was uh, it worked, but in some ways I think, you know, my mom, when I interview her and talk to her, she's like, yeah, I'm kind of, I'm kind of angry at myself because I gave up so much, you know, I gave up eight years of studying in law school Um I gave up a, a, a lot of potential and career and um, I to really focus on rearing the kids, you know? So mm-hmm. she almost felt like she didn't have so much choice, but she went along with the program because the culture was so strong and, you know, that's how it was. You just didn't question it. You compare that to, to my marriage 30 years later in the sense that my husband and I, we share um, domestic duties. And we share work duties, right? And so it's more of an equal split. You know, we're both working and we're both sharing. And that creates an interesting and beautiful complex dynamic that we're still figuring out to Mm -hmm. make work. Mm -hmm. Um, But what's beautiful about it in some ways is that uh, I get to, I have a more of a, I have a greater sense of freedom and ability to share my gifts. And I'll give you the concrete example of the book. It's taken me three years to write this book. I would not have been able to do it if my husband hadn't, you know, um, given me sort of the space and time and respect to be like, yeah, Maho, you have this gift to share. And you have a voice to share as a woman in the world. Like, I don't want to keep you from that. I want to make you sing. And so um, I want to support you in that. And so I think... And he's got his work that he's doing. So I think mm-hmm. um, I just wanted to give a concrete example of like how 
yes, the scripts have shifted, but I think um, thanks to that, women are going to be able to really start sharing their brilliance and gifts in a way uh, that we haven't seen before. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that uh, that philosophy and that assessment too, and I and I think that's true. I've I've talked to and heard and stories and so on. A lot of women for a long time, you know, played the part, but were not satisfied. So the numbers alone, I don't think, tell the whole story. When when we talk about oh well, the divorce numbers have gone up, and, and clearly, I think most would agree. Well, we probably don't want so many divorces because it destabilizes families and individuals and so on. Uh, and at the same time, uh, people being happy and being able to pursue their creativity and their careers, and not that that's the reason for divorces either, because there's all kinds of dy- dynamics there. But a lot of women, when there was a lot less divorce, were just dissatisfied. And if they lived in our times now, probably would have been divorced uh, or pushed for something a little bit different. Uh, so I pre- Oh, my God. Yeah, centuries of women have just been sucking it up. Um, because they've had no choice because if you divorced, where would you go? Yeah. Yeah. There's that aspect and the shunning of societies and their families. And okay. So now you're, you're trapped. And, you know, I think we men take that for granted. Like we men have always had, yeah, we have this, this boy crisis and there's some big truth to that. It's a great book, by the way. And yours, um, I haven't gone through and read the whole, uh, (laughs) thing yet, but, um, I think there's great facts in all of it. But I don't think we men understand what it's like to be a woman because I hear the story. Like I said, I grew up all boys, but women feeling trapped, women being, you know, followed and objectified in clubs and all these these things. Like we I think we men need to think more from a woman's standpoint and put ourselves in your shoes, so to speak, uh, to kind of understand as well. Uh, what, 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 totally. Yeah. What? Uh, what advice do you have for us men, by the way, when it comes, you've already given some great advice and some great insights. Uh, any additional advice for us as we, as we, I shouldn't say deal with, but deal with women and associate with women is probably better words. Uh, what advice do you have for us men? I, my advice is to really speak to more women, the women in your life and listen and ask the question, like, what's it like to be a woman? What's it been like for you? You mm-hmm. know, what have been some hard moments for you in your life um, growing up as a girl and a woman in this society? And just listen to what they have to say. I think you'll you'll learn a lot. Like, I think my husband was pretty surprised to learn that um, at nighttime, I get a little afraid. You know, I get... I get scared even in good neighborhoods to like walk around at night and he was like, Whoa, that's an experience I've never had. And I particularly have that in parking lots. Like whenever I'm in a parking lot and I think any woman who's listening to this conversation is probably shaking her head. Like, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. If you're getting to your car in a parking lot, you're always looking over your shoulder. You're always a little hypervigilant, especially at night. And that's, you know, that's not, maybe not an experience a lot of particularly white males. I want to also bring in the nuance of race in here. If, you know, particularly white males don't feel. Um, mm-hmm. I think if you're a black male, it's like a whole other conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that there's getting those stories from women of like, wow, this is what this felt like. like one time I was walking down the street and there were two men who were just sort of 
walking on the other side of the block and they crossed the street and I got really nervous. Mm. You know, just hearing those stories that you think, oh, I would never, I would never have experienced that, you know? Um, I think that creates empathy, you know, when you listen and gather stories. So I think that's something concrete you can do. Talk to your daughters, talk to your sisters, talk to your mom, talk to your um, co-workers, friends, your, <laughs> yeah, yeah, your classmates. Co-workers. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate yeah. that. Anything else? Uh, I, I think that's simple, and I think we don't have any excuses to not do that. Uh, to, <laughs> I mean, it's it's easy to ask a question, and but actually listen with some empathy and 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 try to comprehend and and connect with with the reality of being a woman. Um, now, yeah. you, you talk a lot about women reclaiming their power and uh, breaking free of what you call these invisible cages. How do women get to that place? Because I think a lot of women are still in that uh, particular set of circumstances in life uh, where they are kind of following the script, so to speak. How do women, and probably anybody really, but since a lot of what you do focuses on women, how do women in particular kind of unleash their creative power and, uh, you know, kind of pursue who they are and what they are, just breaking free of this this trap, so to speak, and these this, this good girl myth? Mm-hmm. Yeah, such a great question. The first step, and this is a really important step because a lot of people miss it, is to become aware of the cage, to actually see the cage. Because if you don't see the cage, you're not going to be able to break out of it. And so the way to see the cage is to really understand what I call in the book uh, as the five good girl myths. There are five good girl myths that every woman abides by, often on a subconscious level mm-hmm. that is driving her life and that's standing between her and her power. And in the book, I break down each of the myths. But the first step in Chapter 2 is an assessment where you assess how you rank on each of the myths and you find out which one is your primary one. Sorry, in chapter three. So every woman needs to become aware. I'll go through each, each one um, of these five myths. Sure. The myth of, the myth of rules, the myth of perfection, the myth of logic, the myth of harmony and the myth of sacrifice. And when I say these five myths, you know, I want to point out this very important nuance. I'm not saying that rules and harmony and sacrifice are bad things. And what I'm saying is when we follow these things by default, without awareness and without choice, we're actually trapping ourselves. So we need to become aware. How am I following the rules? How am I pressuring myself to be perfect? How am I just being harmonious and going along with the program and trying to be easy versus actually standing up for my voice? How am I sacrificing and putting other people's um, time and energy and uh, desires before my own in a way that actually harms me, right? These are the questions that we need to start asking ourselves and like go deep into each of these myths. Because if you don't understand each of these myths, you're not gonna be able to unleash your power. So a lot of the work that I'm doing is around awareness of the shadow aspect of how the patriarchy is manifesting in each of us through these myths. Mm -hmm. And so first step is like assess 
figure out which one is your primary, which one's your secondary. We have all five as women. We have all five, but one or two are really dominant. So really understanding that, then you're going to start to see the cage. And then I propose solutions for each method in the book, um, you know, specific tools, specific techniques that help counteract that specific mess. Uh, so for, I think, you know, it's interesting half the battle really is awareness. When we become aware of something, it reduces its power on us so much. We can begin to see the problem, you know, in a way that we were blind before, because we have so many blind spots. We don't even realize we're walking around with so many blind spots. We don't realize we're going along with the program. We don't realize we're just being harmonious when we don't need to be. We can stand up for our, we can share our voice in a way that is authentic to us. Yeah. I I think mm-hmm. that those are beautiful things. And these, uh, these myths, uh, obviously you get into a lot more depth on all of this in your book, uh, the good girl, uh, break the good girl myth, excuse me. And uh, I think, I think you're obviously doing a lot of good in the world and you have this podcast with uh, a ton of loyal listeners, it sounds like, the, the Heroin Podcast, Heroin with an E, which is uh, women. And and by the way, on that note, and I sometimes ask people this, do you have any heroes that you look up to, uh, you know, as we mm-hmm. get close to wrap up here, anybody that you'd point out as some of your heroes? Yeah. Or he- heroines. <laughs> <laughs> good catch. Um, hmm. I would say my biggest heroine is my mom. She's the best. She's like so brilliant and creative and she's so giving and loving. She's really good with boundaries, which I really respect. Like my mom was always able to say no, you know, um, to me growing up, she wasn't, she, she was a very fierce and strong woman. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I enlarged things, you know, I dedicate the book to my mother and to her mother wow. and to my mat- matrilineal line. So for me, like, you know, they say your first teacher is your mother. So and I, I really agree with that. Um, I think I got really lucky in this lifetime with, with my mom. That's awesome. Yeah. And and I always say, probably without even full understanding of what it all means, but just watching and again growing up all boys and all this, but the things women do and are, whether mothers or not, no one needs to look down on anyone. I think I, I will say I think women can unite better in some arenas. Sometimes women get competitive and catty. I don't like these terms, but uh, but I don't think I don't think that's necessarily the norm. But I think women can unite. And what I will say that I was getting at here is I just think women deserve a gold medal every day just for being women. <laughs> I mean, all the things <laughs> you women go through and do and dealing with the parking lot scenarios at night and and the body image things and uh, and the patriarchy, the societal nonsense. I, I, I honestly, if we had enough gold in the world, I think women could just be <laughs> handed out gold medals every morning <laughs> or every evening or both. Uh, and I and I'm not saying that just to kind of pander to you. I, I really do believe that women really do deserve that. It's really tough, I think, being a woman and women. Mm-hmm. Like our world, we would have blown ourselves up in the first five minutes if it was just men. Women have kept yeah. us grounded, and and we still are blowing up our world. Us primarily us men, <laughs> and so we really do need you, women, and we need to keep you in a better state than we've have over the last centuries and millennia. So. 
Um, I know that you've got to run and we could talk on and on. We'll, maybe we'll do a sequel. I, <laughs> and I hope we do. I say that to a lot of people I talk to, but I genuinely hope we can uh, <laughs> chat more because I think this is, a, this is an awesome topic and I think uh, our society really needs it. Um, so you've got the, go ahead. What were you going to say? I was going to say thank you, Phil. I think also um, I really loved your question around, like, how can men be good male allies to women, you know? And um, that's so important. It's such an important piece of this equation. Uh, You know, I think in some legacy of feminism, there was a sense of pushing men away, and there was a lot of anger and rage that came out and directed towards men. And we're moving to a place where we want to invite men into a conversation and men like you who invite me to come onto the podcast and talk about the patriarchy, like that's, that's the kind of open-mindedness we want. Those are the kinds of male allies we need, right? In order to start changing society, in order to start turning a page here. Yeah, I appreciate that. I, I just think we all need to see a much bigger picture because our world is a bigger picture than the nonsense little pictures we create over race and gender. Like we all need each other and we all need to live in harmony. And I know that's, you know, John Lennon imagined kind of stuff, but I think we can. I, I know we can. Yeah. And, and we need to also value and empathize with those who are different than us on all levels uh, of all the things we just said and more. So, so obviously uh, again, we got to wrap up here, but the Heroin Podcast, Heroin with an E podcast. You've got uh, tons of loyal listeners there. And if anyone hasn't uh, checked that out yet, go check out that anywhere you get podcasts. And Break the Good Girl Myth, How to Dismantle Outdated Rules, Unleash Your Power, and Design a More Purposeful Life. Maho, I can't thank you enough. Thank you for joining yeah. us. Thank you for your great insights. And uh, we'll catch up here down the road as well. For our audience, empower yourself, empower the world around you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Empower Humans. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review this podcast. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit EmpowerHumans.com. We'll catch you next time.